YouTube as well. We're just <clears throat> grateful to be here, grateful to have this opportunity to uh, gather again in, in freedom. We still have that, and we are still appreciative of it. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you and praise you for the gift of Christmas. We praise you and thank you for um, the immeasurable gift that you've given to us in the gift of your son. Uh, this morning, Lord, we want to look into uh, in some depth just what that entailed. And we're, again, praying for the presence of your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to be able to take in all that you have to give to us. And so, Father, I pray you would give us the grace, strength, and wisdom we need to make this a permanent value, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the measure of a gift is not its cost, it's its costliness. If a gift is supposed to represent the expression of the love of the gift giver toward the gift receiver, then the measure of the value of that gift has to be rooted in the effort made to provide it. I can give you a gift that has a great cost but little value if it costs me nothing to provide it. I, I mean, you might think a beautiful diamond ring has an inherent value as a gift, but if I owned a chain of, of jewelry stores and at the last minute I just grabbed the diamond off the shelf and handed it to you, I've not really given you a valuable gift regardless of how much it was worth. Because it costs so little in terms of time and effort. I once did a Christmas message based on O. Henry's short story, The Gift of the Magi. And this is a story that was written at the turn of the century. It involved a, a, a couple named Della and Jim. And they both deeply want to give a, a gift of great value to each other, but they have very limited funds. So Della decides to cut her luxurious hair and to sell it so she can buy a gold chain for Jim's watch. Unbeknownst to her, Jim has sold his gold watch in order to buy Della a set of custom combs. In the end, the great gift that they give and receive is, is the expression of the sacrificial love that they both had for each other. And the story's been repeated endless times. It's, it was uh, a Honeymooners. It's, it's uh, Mickey Mouse had one where Mickey turns in his harmonica to buy Minnie a chain for her watch, and Minnie trades in her watch to buy a case for Mickey's harmonica. And the point is that the, the value of a gift lies not in its cost, but in its costliness. Now, it's one thing to recognize the humble beginnings that Jesus had. I mean, no room at the inn, born in a stable, laid in a manger, no crib for a bed. But until you understand, until you understand just what and where Christ came from and what he left to enter into our world, you're going to never truly get the meaning of Christmas. There never has been a gift as costly as the incarnation of Christ. And so in order to understand the glory that God denied himself in order to incarnate, I want to revisit the very last book of the Bible, which gives us a picture of the glory and the honor that belonged to the Son of God before he became Jesus of Nazareth. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, is given a vision of Christ. And he's successfully lived the perfect life. He's died the perfect death and risen from the grave, triumphantly having ransomed his sheep. And he's now receiving the honor he is due. This is Revelation 5.11. It says, Then I looked, 
and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You know, seven is the number of completeness, and and seven is also the number of these specific qualities that the thousands of thousands who were gathered around the altar are all proclaiming that Jesus was worthy of. They also represent seven different areas of glory that Jesus denied himself by coming to earth as one of us. And so I want to spend some time this morning looking at each of these qualities that Jesus gave up. And the first one, is power. Jesus denied his power. Romans 1.18 says, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. So the first part of the glory that God denied himself in becoming flesh was power. God describes his power as being understood through what he has made. First, we have to understand who he is. I mean, I know growing up, I had an extremely limited understanding of who Jesus was and and what role he had in creation. I had absolutely no idea that this babe in the manger was the very same one who was responsible for everything that has ever come into existence. I mean, the idea that I had before I came to Christ is that Jesus began his existence on Christmas Day 2022 years ago. It never occurred to me that the Son of God had existed for all time along with the Father and the Holy Spirit and that about 2022 years ago that Son left heaven, took on flesh and became a baby who was known as Jesus of Nazareth. He later became known by his title, which is the Christ, which is another word for anointed one. I mean, for the longest time, I thought Christmas morning marked the beginning of the existence of a person whose first name was Jesus and last name was Christ. That's just the way I was raised. That's just what I understood. Now, if if your baseline thinking is anything like mine, then you'd be shocked, as I was when I read the Bible, that Jesus, who I actually thought was a man named Jesus Christ, was known by another name, and that name was The Word. When I first came upon the statement in the Gospel of John about Jesus being the Word, I was shocked to find that it identified him, this Word, as the author of everything in all creation. We read it this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Well, when I first read of this word, I saw that he was uniquely with God as well as being God. Again, that only makes sense if if God is more than one person. I I can't be with you and be you 
unless there's more than one you. And we understand that God is not two, but three. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's God saying that in the beginning. He was, and that this word was there with him at the beginning, and was also God. And that the word was clearly the author of every single thing that's ever been created. It's only when I got down to verse 14 that I realized that this word was another name for Jesus. Because there it said, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so the Bible says that this Jesus, this this word became flesh, spoke the universe into existence by the strength of his power. I mean, that's power that makes the Big Bang look like a firecracker. But it's not any harder to believe than the claims of the materialist naturalist who states that the universe simply blew itself up into existence from nothing. And what I find much harder to believe and much more worthy of glory and honor is the fact that Jesus went from speaking the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the birds, the animals, all of nature. He spoke them into existence and then he went to a place where he couldn't even speak. On Christmas morning, the Son of God found that the voice that had so much power that it brought creation into existence from nothing, now it reduced itself to the squalling of a baby, unable to mouth words. Jesus denied his own personal power to the extent that all he could do was coo and cry like the baby he was willing to become in order to fully enter into the life that you and I live. And we started as babies. And so did he, denying himself the power that was his. Well, next is riches. Riches denied. How do you measure wealth in in a person who's the author of every single thing in the created universe that wealth itself is created through? You know, I own the property that I live on simply because I have a piece of paper stating that at such, at such a time over 40 years ago, uh, I bought it. But that paper is a convenient legal fiction. You see, 40,000 years ago, this property belonged to Jesus Christ, and 40,000 years from today, it will still belong to Jesus Christ for one reason. He created it out of nothing. The same can be said for virtually every single thing in this material world, from the mud under your feet to the hope diamond. As creator and author of the material world, Christ's wealth doesn't rank with anybody else because virtually every ounce of wealth of every person stems from something previously owned by Christ and something that will in the end be recognized as belonging solely to Christ. I mean, picture owning everything and anything this universe has to offer and then being willing to deny yourself to the place that Jesus reduced himself to when he said foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I mean, the poverty that Jesus lived in belied the fact that by far he actually was the richest man who has ever lived. As 2 Corinthians tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus 
denied himself the riches that he was entitled to to freely identify with us. Well, next is wisdom. Wisdom denied. Now, we know that God is the source, the very fountainhead of all wisdom. Now, consider what Jesus did when he left heaven to become a baby. There he is, unable to speak, unable to move, and certainly incapable of expressing the wisdom he once possessed. Now, Jesus was no giant uh, genius baby who spoke like Einstein from the crib. He was someone who had to gain and learn wisdom the hard way. He had to gain and learn wisdom the exact same way that we do. Now, Luke 2 says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I mean, consider the source of all wisdom, voluntarily denying himself the wisdom that he had from eternity past just to identify with us. He started from scratch. He used the very same process for gaining wisdom that we have. The human nature that Jesus embraced had to learn how to crawl, walk, and talk just like we do. And he learned wisdom all the while veiling his human nature from his former wisdom and knowledge. I mean, the scripture says Jesus grew in in wisdom and stature and that he learned obedience through suffering. It paints a portrait of Jesus voluntarily choosing to discover his mission the very same way that we discover our mission from God's wisdom. And we do that by understanding what the Spirit reveals to us through the Scripture. And by having to discover through the Scripture, Jesus identified his full identity as Messiah. You know, a while back we did a a series on the servant songs of Isaiah, and this is a series of prophetic songs that are buried deep in the Old Testament. They speak very clearly of the role that Jesus would have as Messiah. And it's entirely possible that the Father used these servant songs of Isaiah to instruct his son in the role that he would have as the suffering servant. That means that Jesus had to grow in wisdom the hard way by applying himself to the study of Scripture. We know that at the age of 12, Jesus had already discovered through the Scripture his unique relationship with the Father and the role that he would have in reconciling the world to himself. We also know that his understanding caused a substantive break with his earthly parents over his true Father. I mean, if you remember in in Luke 2, the story of the boy Jesus in the temple, you got Mary... And Joseph and and Jesus, they've gone up to this Passover ceremony in Jerusalem. And somehow or other, in the confusion of the caravan, Mary and Joseph both left, each thinking the other one had Jesus with them. And so after three days in a panic, they return to the temple. And what do they find? They find Jesus as a young boy of 12 conversing with the great leaders of the law. This is Luke 2. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Just think about this. Try to picture this for a second. This is a 12-year-old boy wowing the great religious leaders of Israel. Now, Jesus had been attending a Passover celebration, and it meant so much more to him than it did to the Jews who were attending it because Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the scripture, 
had recaptured the wisdom to understand exactly what that Passover was about. I mean, the Jews thought they were just remembering their escape from Egypt. It was an escape provided by the worst of the ten plagues when the angel of death swept into Egypt, killing the firstborn, but passing over all those who had protected their households by smearing the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. Most of them didn't realize that they were picturing the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on the cross, whose blood alone could save them from death itself, but Jesus did. I mean, it was said that during the Passover celebrations in Jerusalem, the stream that ran past the temple turned completely red with the blood of the lambs that were being slaughtered. But only one person in that temple, only one 12-year-old boy understood that all of that blood was a picture of his blood that was going to be shed for sins to be paid for. By the time Jesus had reached the age of 12, his wisdom had so grown that he had fully come to grasp the enormity of who he was. That's why he would say to his earthly parents in Luke 2, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Well, they didn't understand, but Jesus at the age of 12 did. I mean, he fully understood that 12 years earlier he had left heaven itself to enter the womb of a peasant woman to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus had come to fully realize that he was the Messiah come to earth and that he had the very mind of God inside the body of a 12-year-old. Now you think about this. You know, Solomon is considered the wisest man who have ever lived. We have Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Einstein, maybe Stephen Hawking, the world considers to be extraordinarily genius. Well, these folks' minds were mere thimblefuls compared to the limitless ocean of wisdom that was inside the mind of this 12-year-old boy. Just think about, picture this 12-year-old boy. And thousands of years earlier, this boy's mind had confronted Job when Job sought to question his wisdom and how he created and ordered the world. I mean, Job 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Well, the one who had originally laid that cornerstone was now in the flesh, in the temple, in this 12-year-old boy. The same mind went on to ask Job this question. He said, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. That 12-year-old boy could declare it perfectly. Because it was he who thousands of years before had done it. 
And again, he asked Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? This adolescent boy could and did remember that he had denied himself the astounding wisdom that he'd had to become a little baby who had to learn how to crawl and walk and talk. We humans can't begin to imagine just where this young man had come from. This Jesus so denied himself his abundant wisdom that he went on to live a completely obscure life as an infant, as a child, and as an adolescent. <coughs> I mean, understand, <coughs> young Jesus had the religious leaders leaning on his every single word. He could have begun his earthly ministry right then and right there at the center of Jewish thought and culture. He would have been instantly famous. Well, the scripture said he did otherwise. It says, then he went down with them, that's his parents, and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. Well, let me, let me tell you something about Nazareth. You know, when Jesus is first calling his apostles, he finds Philip. Philip finds Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is appalled to find that this Jesus that he's been told of, this guy comes from Nazareth? This is what Nathaniel said about Nazareth in John 1. He says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, instead of welcoming fame like he could have at the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus goes back with mom and dad to the mean streets of Nazareth. You know, John Gill commented over a century ago, he said, the whole country of Galilee was had in contempt with the Jews. But Nazareth was so mean a place that it seems it was even despised by its neighbors, by the Galileans themselves. For Nathaniel was a Galilean that said these words. It was so miserable a place that he could hardly think that any sort of good thing, even any worldly good thing, could come from thence. So instead of staying in his father's house, the boy Jesus returns to this appalling place called Nazareth with his parents, Mary and Joseph. And you know why? He had learned well the lesson of the servant song in Isaiah 42. It says, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. You see, this 12-year-old boy was the most brilliant genius the world has ever known. He was astounding the greatest teachers in Israel. And yet, even though his own mother and Joseph still didn't understand him, he leaves the temple. That place could have been the launching place for worldwide fame, power, and ministry. And he goes back to a life of absolute and complete obscurity, working in a carpenter's shop for his stepfather. Because again, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And so for 18 more years, Jesus submits to and serves his earthly parents. The one whose wisdom laid the cornerstone of earth itself is now measuring and cutting boards for his stepfather. The creator of Orion and the chain of Pleiades is doing household chores for his mother. So just consider the glory of Jesus' infinite wisdom denied. Well, next we have strength. Strength denied. 
Strength and power are oftentimes seen as synonymous. I mean, for our purposes, we could look at the power that Jesus denied himself in all that he created and the strength that he denied himself as something personal, something that Jesus clearly gave up in his person. And Jesus went to possessing the greatest strength the universe has ever seen to a personal weakness such that as a newborn, he couldn't even lift his head. He couldn't speak. This voluntary lack of strength was temporary, though we know Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. But then we return as he comes full circle at the very end, giving up his strength as he cries out in complete and utter weakness from the cross. We're reminded of the extent of the strength that Jesus denied himself in an incident that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was about to be arrested. This is the incident, according to John 18. It says, so Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, Jesus, of course, knew exactly who they were after. But he also knew that the disciples were in grave danger as well. And so he stated the question emphatically, not once but twice, in order to make certain that the soldiers would narrow their focus specifically to him. Again, he says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Not what is it you want. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So after identifying himself as the specific one being targeted, he repeats the question once more, isolating himself in order to protect the disciples. And again, he says, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. See, so precious were the disciples of Jesus that even though they were all about to scatter and abandon him, he was thinking specifically of them for two reasons. Number one, he deeply loved them. For number two, they were gifts that were given to him by his father. He said, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now, we all know what happened next. I mean, Jesus surrendered himself to the authorities, and immediately they began beating and mistreating him. But when we consider Jesus denying himself strength, we need to go back to this incident in the garden and re-examine what we can easily overlook. Again, John 18, it says, So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. A detachment of soldiers. Well, a detachment could range anywhere from upwards to 600 soldiers who formed a cohort down to 100 or so, but it was a large number. And there's plenty of argument as to how many people were there in the garden that night, but one thing is for certain, these were heavily armed men who were sent to address what the Jews had presented to them as a grave threat to the nation. One way of understanding it, as one commentator said, at the very least, this was the equivalent of a heavily armed SWAT team arriving to take Jesus into custody. And Jesus used that opportunity to very subtly demonstrate the strength that belonged to him 
and a, the strength that he was willing to deny. The scripture says, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. It's a detail given in the narrative that seems so minor. It seems easy to overlook. But understand, Jesus had the power to flatten a detachment of soldiers, a hundred or so in number, just by opening his mouth. I mean, another indicator of Jesus' strength occurred when Peter cut off one of the soldiers' ears. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, he said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Well, you talk about strength denied. Jesus has just kind of casually stated that there are 72,000 angels that are just waiting with bated breath for a signal from Jesus, and they will make Judas and this cohort of soldiers regret that they've ever lived. At the strength of Jesus' command, he could have unleashed creatures that this world will only see on Judgment Day. Now, there's been some who have tasted a little bit of these angels' fury, We've got a little taste of it if you consider the ancient ruler named Sennacherib. He, he mocked God. He attempted to annihilate the Jews. And the night before he was to attack, he got to the experience, not 72,000 of these angels, but one. And this is what 2 Corinthians says happened. It says, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. Sennacherib's army was destroyed for mocking God's people. But here it is God himself about to be mocked, stripped, and crucified. And yet for our sakes, Jesus is denying the strength that could have stopped it immediately. And next we have honor. Honor denied. And time again, Jesus performed miracles. Instead of receiving the honor that those miracles deserved, he was denied that either through the greed of the crowd that simply demanded more food, more miracles, more shows, or in the case of those who were close to him, including family, who were genuinely offended at who he was, it was outright denial. And the sting of this particular denial was the more worthy of honor Jesus was, the more intent on denying him that honor were those closest to him. Matthew describes one such response to Jesus' miracles. It says, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. There was no one more worthy of honor than Jesus. And yet he found himself time and again profoundly without honor among those he was closest to. And next we have glory. Glory denied. And we know at the end of Jesus' public ministry, he poured out his heart to his father in prayer. And we have parts of that prayer preserved in scripture. And one of Jesus' heartfelt requests of his father was for the honor and glory that he once had to be restored. In John 17, he says, this is his prayer. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Well, what was that glory like? We don't know. We only have little snippets to inform us. And one such snippet was described by the prophet Isaiah, who was once caught up literally into the throne room of God to see what that glory looked like. And he described it this way. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now you have to understand, Isaiah was arguably the holiest man of his entire generation, and he's brought into the presence of the glory of God. And in that presence, he's so aware of his uncleanness, he feels like he's disintegrating. Well, Christ, as the flawless Son of God, was quite at home in the presence of that glory. It was perfectly natural. It was perfectly appropriate for him. And he traded it all in for a manger in a barn in Bethlehem as he denied himself his glory. And finally, we have blessing. Blessing denied. And the Bible tells us that not only did Jesus deny himself the blessing that he was in and of himself, but that for us, he willingly became a curse. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Now, R.C. Sproul, in an article entitled, Jesus Became a Curse for Us, he makes the case for Christ voluntarily denying himself the blessing of himself by recasting probably the most famous blessing in all of the Bible. We've all heard it many, many times. It's number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Sproul said in the, art, in the article, my purpose here is not to explain the blessing of God, but it's polar opposite. It's antithesis, which again can be seen in vivid contrast to the benediction. The supreme malediction would read something like this. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. See, the wonder of Christmas is that from the very start, God knew that this curse was precisely why he had to leave heaven itself. To enter into a place of absolute darkness that hated the light that he was. I mean, Jesus' mission was to glorify his father by ransoming and rescuing his sheep. And to do that, he not only had to live a perfect life among us as one of us, but he also had to offer that life up as payment in kind for the sin debt that every one of us had. So that by faith in his sacrifice, we could then claim Jesus' righteousness as our own and stand before God, no longer clothed in our sin, but now clothed in his perfection. As 2 Corinthians says, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus literally traded blessing for cursing. So is it any wonder that all of heaven marveled at the glory of glory denied that Jesus represented? See, Christmas really is a story of power denied when the power of the one who spoke the world into existence could no longer speak. Of riches denied when the creator and the owner of all wealth that has ever existed for our sake became a man with no place to lay his head. 
of wisdom denied, when the author of wisdom itself denied himself that wisdom, choosing instead to learn who he was through the study of Scripture. And when at age 12 he recognized his purpose, he still willingly came under the authority of his step-parents for another 18 years. Christmas is also the story of strength denied. When the one whose very voice could flatten a cohort of soldiers whose angels could slaughter an entire army in an evening when he gave up that strength and voluntarily became weak for us. Of honor denied. When Jesus himself said that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Of glory denied. When Jesus finishes up his ministry by crying out to his father to restore to himself the glory he's forsaken. Of blessing denied when Jesus literally becomes a curse for us. Jesus, according to Philippians 2.5, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a passage we're all familiar with. Everybody's heard that. It's followed up, though, by a therefore. That should be our takeaway for this Christmas season. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, our takeaway this morning is the biblical principle summed up by Jesus himself. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus perfectly humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, denying the glory that belonged to him and him alone. You know, we say the practical test of whether or not you have a servant's heart is to determine whether or not or how you respond when you're treated like one. How did Jesus respond? Well, he responded perfectly. And all heaven exalted him. Again, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, what a gift your Son is to us. What a cost of this gift. I just think of all that you have vested in him and all that he was willing to give up in order to identify with us. And I praise you and I thank you for the greatest gift that ever was, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.